Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, where we see Satan seeking to rob God of his glory, but unsuccessfully. Acts chapter 15. Last time we looked at verses 1 through 5, and uh, we're going to continue on, but let's uh, pick up at verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they." Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after that, they became silent. James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all His works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who were of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by the word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. 
Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a light unto our path. It is oil where healing is needed. It is a fire where we need to be purged. Uh, We thank You that Your Word is able to tear down strongholds and every high thing that has exalted itself against the knowledge of You. And I pray that this morning uh, You would take the weakness of uh, preaching and that You would use it uh, with the power of Your Spirit uh, to enable us to be more sanctified, more ready to carry out Your Word, to uh, uh, live for the extension of Your kingdom and for Your glory. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This is the Chinese word for conflict or crisis. Sometimes it's translated. Wei Ji. It's uh, made up of two characters. This character here, Wei, means danger. And this character, Qi, means opportunity. And so it's a rather positive word for defining um, conflict. Uh, Not just the danger side, but the opportunity side. Now, some people uh, are so preoccupied with the danger aspect of of conflict that they avoid conflict all the time. Even when they should be in conflict, they avoid it because they want to avoid all danger. On the other hand, there are some people who are constantly picking fights because all they can see is the opportunities if they win, what they can get for themselves. And it seems like always, or at least mainly, They are um, preoccupied with the opportunity side of this equation. But wherever there is conflict, there's always going to be two parts. There's going to be danger. There will be opportunity, at least potentially. uh, Both of those uh, aspects will be present. When you have two people who are vying for the same parking stall (laughs) at uh, Christmas time shopping, uh, you know, there's always the potential when you get in first that the other guy is going to come out and want to beat on your car. Now, it happens so rarely that people say, you know, it's not a big deal. Uh, But I actually was witness uh, to a case, and I stuck around trying to prevent this from happening, where a guy came out with a club that looked like he was not just going to beat the car, he was going to beat the other guy. It didn't happen. But I bet you, from now on, that person is going to be thinking of the dangerous side, you know, of, uh, of conflict, not just the opportunity. And you can see this everywhere. When two children are fighting over a toy, well, there is the danger that the mom might catch them, come in and, uh, you know, give a spanking to one or both of them. But they're thinking about that opportunity of getting that toy. And so they're engaging in conflict. When we engage in some of the culture wars that are out there, there's the danger that there could be alienation and persecution and misunderstanding by the world. But there's also the opportunity to make a positive difference in our culture, an opportunity to please the Lord and to advance uh, His kingdom. And in this chapter, we've got all kinds of conflicts. There were differences of opinion over what the facts of the situation were, over values and methods and interests and the goals that God wanted us to pursue. And so anybody who thinks you can just settle any argument by logically presenting the facts has probably not been into too many arguments. Because people are notoriously capable of taking facts and interpreting them in ways that are just going to, you know, defend your position. Whether it's whether the facts are statistics, you've seen statistics abused, haven't you? Uh, or uh, whether it is 
the interests or the goals or whether it's even using of verses. We've seen cults use verses and use them rather effectively to prove their point. And even godly people can be in a discussion for an hour throwing all kinds of verses back and forth and they come apart still disagreed. I think we've seen that happen all the time. If you watch a courtroom uh, scenes or on the TV, they have some of those uh, uh, live uh, court uh, situations. Two people can be looking at exactly the same facts and interpreting them differently. And we see that in this chapter. And because we live in the 20th century, it is hard to appreciate how notoriously difficult it was for that first century church to settle this matter. It was so tough. And I've struggled uh, this past week in how to communicate this to you uh, because I want you to understand the theology that was being debated. It's marvelous theology and we're going to be teaching that. But I also want to teach you how uh, some of the principles for resolving conflicts because this chapter has some marvelous, marvelous teaching on that. But I, I couldn't really separate them out into two sermons. So I decided we're going to teach them together get rid of good homiletic procedure. You guys are used to that anyway. And teach them together. And I think as we go through this, you'll see that, that there was a good reason for that. As you read this chapter, you might be tempted to think, what's so hard about this? Why don't they just open up the Bible? I mean, I can figure this one out. This is easy. But uh, I want to point out that the Bible was used by both sides on this debate. And I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. And you'll see how this discussion of how Jews and Gentiles are in one body is called a mystery, or some translate it is called a secret. That means it was never revealed before. This is the first time that people had heard about this. Now, it was consistent with the Old Testament, but the Old Testament did not uh, actually prophesy about that. In fact, in Peter's speech, he appeals to brand new revelation that occurred in Acts chapter 10. He does not appeal to the Old Testament. And when James appeals to the Old Testament in Acts 15, he does not say that it was prophesied. He quotes Simon's new revelation and he says, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. In other words, it's consistent with the Old Testament, but the Old Testament didn't prophesy about it. And that's what we're going to be looking at here in Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 3. It says, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, that's the word secret, the mystery as I briefly have written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Now here's the mystery that hadn't been revealed before and now is being revealed by the apostles and prophets that Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. It wasn't a mystery that Gentiles would become saved. That was prophesied over and over again in the Old Testament that when Messiah came, there was going to be all over the world, many, many people. In fact, every nation, every king was going to become saved. What was a mystery is that once these Gentiles are saved, they will stay Gentiles. And yet, they're going to be incorporated into Israel, incorporated into the church. Now, this was so far outside the thinking of Jews that they had a hard time understanding this. This was thinking way outside the box for them. Anytime that Gentiles got saved before, 
they would get circumcised. They would become full-blown Jews. They would celebrate all of these ceremonial laws. Uh, Esther 8, verse 17, for example, says, Then many of the people of the land became Jews. They didn't stay Gentiles. They got circumcised. After they got saved, they got circumcised. They followed all of the uh, Old Testament ceremonial laws. And so this is why the Judaizers in this chapter had very strong arguments that they could bring up from the Old Testament. We shouldn't just think these are a bunch of dumb clocks. These guys could appeal to Exodus 12. They could appeal to so many passages that mandated circumcision. So this, this, for them, this was an odd thing that was happening. It looks now like Paul is the one who was violating the Old Testament. Paul is the one who was undermining what has always been done. So Paul's on the defensive, even though he's holding to the true doctrine. And these people are the ones who think they're the ones triumphing. Uh, and they're the ones who are, are sticking up for the Scriptures. Of course, we're going to be seeing in Acts 15 that all the apostles have the same revelation. It's not just Paul. But I want you to look with me just a little bit earlier in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, to just get a bit of a feeling for what it was that Paul was preaching. This was so controversial, the message we're going to be reading here. Starting in verse 11, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, and they were far off from what? He's just finished saying, far off from the commonwealth of Israel from the covenants of promise, from all of the blessings that flowed from that, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. The middle wall of separation was the ceremonial law. It was what divided between a Jew and the Gentile. It was designed to keep them separate. Um, having abolished in His flesh the enmity... That is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now, some people have grossly misinterpreted this and said, Paul's throwing out the whole Old Testament law, moral law, everything. That is not talking about the moral law. It's talking about the law of commandments contained in ordinances. This was the ceremonial law brought under Moses. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now, this is radical doctrine. This is so different what, what he is talking about right here. Going on in verse 16, "...and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints." and members of the household of God. This, this is just incredible news. He's not making them get circumcised. He's saying, even though you're still Gentiles, you're part of Israel. You're part of the household. You're brothers together in Christ. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that's a very significant phrase, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, 
in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So it was a radical uh, message. And let me just give you a side note with regard to prophecy and why it was needed until all of the New Testament documents had been written. Look at verse 20 again. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The only way this new form of the church, the church existed in the Old Testament, but the only way the new form of the church could be established was through a new foundation of brand new revelation. You couldn't have done it based on the Old Testament. It was a mystery. It was something that had to be newly revealed. Now, previously I showed that once the foundation was laid, you don't keep laying foundation. You build on top of that. Okay, so we don't continue to have prophets today, just as you don't keep laying cornerstones because there's only one Christ. You don't have a whole bunch of Christ through history. You don't have a whole bunch of apostles and a whole bunch of prophets through history because there's only one foundation. It was laid in the first century. And so everything that the apostles and prophets brought is recorded in one form or another in the New Testament. Now, the objection that some people raise to the ceasing of prophecy is there really wouldn't be a need, they say, uh, if their role was only inspired revelation. One of my uh, friends has uh, pointed out that uh, there were many, many prophets in the New Testament. They didn't all give Scripture. And secondly, he says, they're constantly prophesying. So if the only thing they're giving is inspired revelation, what's the point? I mean, why do they have to do this over and over again? How many prophecies do you need to settle this question? And Acts 15 and Ephesians 3 explains why the prophets were needed. The idea that the Gentiles should be turned, should not be turned into Jews, but should be welcomed as full citizens was so radical and received so much opposition uh, and conflict that God sent prophets all throughout the empire to teach and reinforce the new revelation. Take a look at Ephesians 3, verses 3 through 6 again. Ver the same mystery that verse 3 says was revealed to Paul and that he wrote about in his epistles is revealed in verse 5. It says, has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Okay, so that's why the prophets were needed. And by the way, Luke was one of those prophets. Uh, some of these charismatics try to make such a, a difference between apostles and prophets. They say apostles were inspired. They were like the Old Testament prophets, but prophets were not inspired. They receive guidance and revelation like we receive. And uh, they are fallible, they're errant, uh, but uh, they're, they're, there's quite a difference between them. But right here in Ephesians, you know, Ephesians 2, verse 20, it's a foundation of apostles and prophets. Chapter 3, same revelation, the same mystery that was given to Paul was given to the prophets. There is no difference. In the book of Acts, uh, the word prophets for the New Testament, same word that's used when it refers to prophets of the Old Testament. And so, I, I should also point out that uh, not all of the, very few of the apostles actually wrote Scripture. And yet, they were inspired and infallible in their declarations. And there were prophets who wrote Scripture. Some people say, oh, the only way you could write a Scripture is if you were somehow connected to an apostle. No. Uh, how is Hebrews connected to an apostle? Or how is uh, Mark or Luke, you know, two Gospels written by non-apostles? And there's other uh, uh, books as well. Hebrews, James, Jude. They were none of them 
apostles. So with that as a background, take a look at Ephesians, I mean, it's Acts 15. And this is a side note, but I think it's an important side note. Acts 15, verse 32. It says, Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. They were constantly reinforcing this new revelation everywhere in, in, the, in the empire. Now, if that was the only issue that was at stake, you probably would have needed the Jerusalem Council. But there was all kinds of other complicating issues as well, and I've written those in your outline. Point B, is Paul out to destroy Jewish culture and make all Jews into Gentiles? And the answer from the council was no. That's a misunderstanding of Paul. In fact, James says in verse 19, it was the Gentile culture that was being destroyed. It's the Gentiles who are the ones being troubled. And so Jews can continue to value their culture. But verse 23 makes clear that Jewish and Gentiles believers are brothers together. And that's a whole new way of thinking. They're brothers. Another question that may have come up into the mind of Paul was, are the Jerusalem leaders undermining my authority? And according to Galatians, that may have been a question that came into the minds of uh, some other people as well. Because after all, James was the one, according to Galatians uh, chapter uh, 1, James was the one who, no, that's chapter 2, who sent these people in verse 1. But James goes on to say here, no, we have exactly the same gospel, exactly the same message as Paul. Uh, does In fact, uh, in verse 24, he says that he did not authorize these people to be giving that message. He absolutely did not authorize it. Verse 25, James calls them our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord. And so they were clearly not undermining Paul. In Galatians, it's quite clear that some were saying that James and Paul had two different Gospels. But Peter, James, Paul, every one of them, the elders were all saying there's only one gospel of Jesus Christ and it's the same one that Paul is preaching. It is a gospel by faith alone, through grace alone, based on the merits of Christ alone. Take a look at verse 11 as just one example. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Now, another concern that many Jews were fighting over, and it was because they were engaged in evangelism. They were trying to reach out to Jews uh, their concern was, we've got to be sensitive to Jewish culture. If we start acting like Gentiles, they're not even going to listen to our message. And uh, it, in verses 20 through 21, they absolutely agree with that statement. They say, that's a good point, and we need to be careful about that. Very legitimate concern. Uh, after giving four ceremonial laws that they need to follow... Verse 21, it says, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. That's the reason why four ceremonial laws. Now, some people are confused because of the translation in the New King James, but I'll be explaining in another sermon. They, they definitely are four ceremonial laws. Now, there were some people at the conference who could immediately pull out their Bibles to justify what they were saying. They were saying, look, you guys recognize that we need to be sensitive to Jewish culture. We're evangelizing out there. In fact, you've already agreed. We need to impose these four ceremonial laws. So why can't we be sensitive to Jewish culture by having everybody get circumcised? I mean, that's the major dividing point between Jews and Gentiles. This is just sensitivity for the sake of the gospel. 
But to give in on that point would obliterate, would destroy the Jew-Gentile united in one body mystery. It would completely obliterate it. It would turn them into Jews. Okay, so it would overthrow the new revelation of the mystery. But a good exegete of the Bible I would have been able to give all kinds of scriptures to show that this was a good, a gracious God who gave the ceremonial laws. And nobody here disagreed that it was a good and a gracious God who gave it. But Peter points out nobody's been able to keep these laws perfectly uh, anyway. And to some of the people, it may have seemed like this is an insult to the God who so graciously gave these laws if we don't continue to celebrate them. So I think you can see there why there could be confusion. Another question that came up to Paul was, aren't there distinct advantages to being circumcised as a Jew? Now, none of the Jews at this conference disagreed with that. None of them. Even Paul said in Romans 3, verses 1 through 2, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. His answer is, man, there's great profit to being circumcised, much in every way. And he proceeds to give the first and the foremost of those benefits to circumcision. Now, that must have really confused some of the people there. Maybe it's even confused you. Maybe you thought, hey, there's really no benefit whatsoever to circumcision. That's just not the case. All of the ceremonial laws have many purposes. One of them, I think, was health benefits. So there were benefits that were out there. And in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19, Paul said he didn't care if a Gentile wanted to get circumcised. He could do it if he wanted to, to, to get circumcised. But he must never submit to a mandate to get circumcised as if it's a religious mandate. And the deeper you get, the more complex this debate becomes. You cannot simply settle it in a five-minute discussion. Now, some people want that. Their worldview is very shallow, and they're quite content with that. And they don't have the patience to listen to sermons like this that deal with intricacies. But I really want you guys to have a, a deep worldview, not just a shallow one. Now, I can just imagine somebody standing up and saying, Now, wait a minute. I am really confused. I've been hearing all of this stuff, but just weeks before this convened, this conference convened, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians, and in Galatians 5, in that book, he said, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. In fact, in that book, he says, it is a yoke of bondage. I mean, that's slander, is it not? He seems to be saying the exact opposite of what he says in Romans 3, that there is much advantage to circumcision. And this is where Peter's message is so critical in Acts chapter 15. There is no salvation through any law-keeping, whether it's moral law-keeping, ceremonial law-keeping, it doesn't matter. There is no salvation through law-keeping. And we've got to clearly distinguish between the outward benefits of circumcision, that would be a passage like Romans 3, 1 through 2, and trying to connect circumcision or anything else to justification. That's the book of Galatians. Our work is never a part of justification. So, is circumcision allowed? Well, yes, if it's a cultural thing. But it's absolutely not allowed if people say, you've got to be circumcised if you're going to be saved. We know even baptism can't have that condition. So, if you look at the fine details of the apostles' arguments, you begin to understand. But if you just give a surface look at it, it could be a little bit confusing. Why was there so many problems that they were trying to think through? I think the, many of these delegates were at first uh, confused.
That's why the conference, that's why the need for such clarity in Paul's epistles. Now, I'm not going to comment on every question in your outlines, but I can hear a confused Jew asking the question in point L. Okay, let me try to clarify, Paul. Are you saying that circumcision is not mandated, but it is recommended? And Paul would say, well, it depends on your motive and it depends on your goal. For example, in Acts 16, verse 3, Paul recommended that Timothy get circumcised. And Timothy did get circumcised. Here's a Gentile getting circumcised. What's going on here? Because he absolutely refused to let Titus get circumcised at an earlier time. That was around the time of Acts chapter 11. So what's going on? Well, there was quite different context. See, Timothy is a mature leader in the church already. He's recognized by everybody as being a leader. He's justified. He's not trying to get justified. But you see, with Timothy... Um, they worked so much with Jews in almost every city that they went to that they would be much more effective if Timothy was, was circumcised. So they said, let's go ahead and do it. It's not going to compromise any doctrinal principle, whereas with Titus, it would have compromised a doctrinal principle. So hopefully you're beginning to get a feel for the theological issues that were being discussed. Here's another question, point O. If ceremonial laws are not binding... Why does the Jerusalem Council impose ceremonial laws in verses 20 and 29? Is that not inconsistent? So I could hear a Gentile saying, this is not right. You guys are saying with one uh, side of your mouth, no ceremonial laws are binding. And now you've come out with a compromise where you've got four ceremonial laws that are binding on you. Well, the answer is that the New Testament nowhere does away with all ceremonial laws. Lord's table. That's a ceremonial law. All of the Old Testament sacrificial meals, not the sacrifices themselves, all the blood sacrifices have passed away, but the core elements remain. That is a ceremonial law that we are keeping every Sunday. Baptism is a ceremonial law. In fact, it's interesting that in Hebrews, this is the big book that deals with why the ceremonial laws, for the most part, are no longer binding. It does not say they completely have been obliterated. Hebrews 7 verse 12 says, for the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. Change is different than obliteration, right? So, we still have ceremonial laws, and on a later Sunday, I'm going to be pointing out why these four additional ceremonial laws are suited so perfectly to the worldwide spread of the gospel, just like the Lord's table and baptism, perfectly suited to the worldwide uh, uh, sending forth uh, of the gospel. But I'm not going to deal with it today. Point P. Should believing Jews and Gentiles continue to be separated? Isn't that what ceremonial law does? And here, here might be their argument. If Jews are optionally, okay, not mandated, we agree with you there, if they are optionally allowed to celebrate all of the ceremonial laws, why can't they optionally be allowed to separate from Gentiles? That's what we were doing in Antioch. Why is Paul getting all over Peter's case? If, if it's optionally allowed, surely it's optionally allowed for us to be separated. That's the whole point of ceremonial law, isn't it? And so you can see, man, there's some head scratchers that are going on at this uh, council. And they might add to the whole equation what we looked at last week. The zealots are persecuting us. Wouldn't it be a better thing if we just kept separate? Let's have separate churches. And here's what the answer would be. 
Galatians says, no. This council says, no. If you separate, you are destroying the Jew-Gentile body and you are de facto imposing ceremonial law as a mandate if people want to be full-class citizens. If they want to be able to celebrate and fellowship with you and take communion with you, then they have to follow the ceremonial law. He says that would destroy the unity of the body. And so, basically, they say, no way, no way, no way. You cannot do that. It's absolutely imperative. So, even though initially it might seem like a very reasonable conclusion, once they saw the ramifications of where it was going, uh, they would realize they can't do that. And yet, some might wonder, does that mean that every local church had to be racially integrated? Do we have to have quotas now? You know, how many Jews are in your synagogue? We're going to be watching, you know, do you have a Jew and a Gentile in in uh, your session, and they just didn't go down uh, that road at all because there are cultural differences where some people just do not feel comfortable in this kind of a church culture. They'd much rather, you know, be in a black church in North Omaha. Okay, that's great. Well, there was the same kind of things that were going on there. But here was the question. Culture, no problem. You want to do it the Jewish way over here and you want to have a a Gentile culture in your church over here. That is not a problem. It becomes a problem if a Gentile likes your Jewish culture. He comes in, wants to sit down in your church and you won't let him. He wants to take communion with you and you won't let him. He says that absolutely may not be. Now, hopefully, as I've gone through a discussion of these various possible arguments. Well, actually, there are certain arguments that they were that they were talking about there. It'll give you a, a feel uh, for how complicated the debate was. And that's one, no wonder to me that the debate lasted so long. What's amazing is that they came to an agreement. In fact, if you look at verse 22, they, they, they settled it so clearly, it says, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send the delegates, please them to write that letter. It pleased them. That's the degree of unity that they had. And it's absolutely amazing. And so based on that background, I want to look this week and next week at some of the issues that can help us to solve just as complicated of problems as they did in our own day. First ingredient was broad representation. Verse 6 says, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. This was not something that was imposed by the apostles. Okay, they let everyone hear Everyone was involved, and it gave at least two benefits. First, it ensured that all perspectives were being discussed and addressed. Just because you're a leader in your family or a leader elsewhere does not mean you automatically know all of the fears and concerns and frustrations that people uh, have going on. You need to listen. You need to investigate. You need to find out. Second, it would ensure that there would be less misunderstandings that would emerge from the conference uh, once the conference was finished. If all of the elders are present, then you're not, not going to have to debate this regionally over and over again. And so the first principle is that broad representation helps to ensure broad acceptance. The second ingredient for success was that all of the people's concerns were being heard. Verse 7. When, they, when there had been much dispute, again, the, the apostles did not dominate the discussion. They allowed people's voices to be heard. And I've broken that down in your outlines into three parts. There's, first of all, procedural integrity. Procedural integrity. Let me just 
illustrate what that does not mean. If I was really powerful, which I'm not in my denomination, and I went to the General Assembly and I got all my friends to uh, help me, you know, to win this particular debate. And I said, OK, I want everybody rush up to the microphones and we're going to make sure we dominate all these microphones. And as soon as about five or six people have said their say in favor of my position, I'm going to stand up and say, I move that we close debate. Yeah, that'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Uh, that would be monkeying with the system. That's one of the reasons why Robert's rules of order are used in the, uh, you know, in churches. They're used in um, Congress and all over the place. It's because they want minorities. They want everyone to be able to be able to discuss things freely and fairly and with integrity. In fact, Robert's rules of order on that particular example mandate that after a person who has spoken for an issue you have to take a person who speaks against the issue. Even if there's 10 people lined up at the mics to speak for it, and there's only one against, he gets his turn. Okay, Even if he's maybe got into line way after the others. Now, obviously, they didn't have Robert's Rules of Order at that first General Assembly, but it's just as obvious that everyone was allowed to express their opinion. We aren't told how many days this dispute went on or who the contributors were, but we know from verse 5 that the Judaizers were allowed to express their opinion. At the end of the day, or at the end of the week, or month, however long this went on, we're not told, uh, they were not able to argue that they had not been given a fair shake in proving their position biblically. They had been given a fair shake. A second procedural issue that helped to ease tensions is that they met on more neutral ground. Antioch, by this time, was so emotional about this whole subject that maybe some of these people who were favoring the ceremonial law would have felt they're not going to get a fair shake if this is heard in Antioch. This is Paul's stronghold, okay? So they went to Jerusalem, and it was somewhat neutral ground, probably a little bit more favorable, actually, to uh, the Judaizers in, in their eyes, but uh, it, 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 it helped there to, 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 to make it feel like things were being fair. Third, it's quite clear in this chapter that everything was done decently and in order. There was speaking, there was listening. Verse 12 says, Then the multitude kept silent and listened. Verse 13 shows James waits until Paul and Barnabas had their say. And then they started, he started speaking. So there wasn't interruption. There wasn't cutting of people off. There was no leader who was bullying, uh, using bullying tactics to get their way. The fourth, the final act, which shows procedural integrity was that their decision was committed to writing so that everyone could read it. You know, if there was any question, there was, it was right there in black and white so that everybody knew exactly what was happening. It wasn't an agreement that was made in the back room. I mean, that just makes people mad. And even pagans get mad when they see stuff like that happening. Now, let me illustrate why procedural integrity is so important. And I could use any number of illustrations from our denomination, but I've picked one from a university. And in this university, there was a small group of administrators who decided that they wanted to uh, start a new master's program. And there were two ways that they could go about this. Uh, traditionally, there was a, a way that involved all of the um, uh, 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 faculty committees but they knew this would drag it out for months and they wanted to get started very, very quickly. The other way was for the enthusiastic administrators to get together and just within a few days to hammer everything out that needed to be hammered out. And then they would present it to the people for their approval to the rest of the faculty. 
Well, thinking that they were doing a big favor to this overworked uh, faculty, they hammered everything out in a few days. They designed the curriculum, they set the degree requirements, wrote course descriptions, even assigned which faculty would teach on which courses. And then they called a meeting to announce this exciting new development that had uh, come about. But when they presented the wonderful, helpful news, they just about had a riot on their hands. These people were not pleased at all, uh, to say the least. Uh, they were very, very upset. A lot of heated comments and accusations. And Collins, as he describes it, he says, the meeting ended when the initiators raised the white flag, gave the bound proposal to the faculty, and quickly exited the conference room. And here's the kicker. A number of months later, after the faculty committees had uh, talked through this, they brought back the proposal that they had hashed out, and it was 95% the same as the original proposal that had been given. In fact, some of the pages hadn't even been retyped. The identical new old pages had been submitted, but they felt good about it because they had been able to debate, give people's input, their concerns that they had, and they had ownership of this project because everyone had been involved. And uh, I think it's just uh, the whole aspect. We can have wonderful ideas that we bring forward and we think everybody's going to love this idea. But if we avoid the procedural aspect, procedural integrity and procedural satisfaction, you might have integrity, but not the satisfaction. Uh, it can just go sour. Uh, in fact, uh, we were discussing, we don't have any controversy in this church on the whole issue of voting. Um, and, uh, you know, we've written some things on this, but uh, Elder Swab very wisely said, you know, we need to make sure everybody here has opportunity to give feedback. There may be things we haven't even thought about. Let's put this on the web, on the web forum. And, yeah, have a paper to start out and then let's just debate it for quite a few weeks. And I thought that's a brilliant idea because it helps the whole church to feel the satisfaction procedurally. Now, don't just apply this to big groups. In the family, a dad does have the authority to make an executive decision, and sometimes those are important. But 1 Peter 4, 7 says, we are to dwell with our wives with understanding. What does that mean? If you never listen to their input, you are definitely not dwelling with them with understanding. And so procedural satisfaction and integrity, it's a small price to pay for having unity. A second aspect of this true listening and hearing of concerns is psychological satisfaction. Look at verse 22 again. It says, Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church. It pleased them. There was psychological satisfaction. When people look back on the Jerusalem council, I think all of them were able to feel like they were treated with respect. Their concerns were listened to. They were addressed. Their contributions to the discussion uh, were recognized. You know, there is nothing worse when you are in a, a meeting that's going to be making changes and it's going to be influencing and impacting your life to be treated like a pariah. Yeah, you can talk, but people aren't really listening. In fact, maybe they're snickering. Maybe they're, you know, chuckling under their breath uh, when, when you're talking. If you feel that way, it's very hard to take that group seriously at all. And yet that happens sometimes in families, brothers and sisters, not really taking seriously the contributions of others. No problem disagreeing, but we do need to give them some kind of satisfaction. Now, these people who are arguing for circumcision had biblical arguments that they could raise. And here's how the council sought to give them psychological satisfaction. There's five points that are not in your outline there. First, 
It gave the opponents a voice. You can see that in verses 5 through 7. Uh, I've already mentioned that, so I won't repeat it here, but it is important. They listened. Second, their spokesman, James, wrote the letter. I think that's significant. Now, he wasn't actually their spokesman because James later said he had exactly the same message that Paul did. But they obviously trusted James. They didn't trust Paul. Galatians 1 says James sent them. He followed the ceremonial law. These guys at least felt that they could uh, you know, respect the decision that he would be, the proposal he was writing. Now, they do get a rebuke from uh, James. Verse 24 uh, says that they had misrepresented James and they, he rebukes them for it. To whom we gave no such command, but he is a leader that they trust. And so that helps to give psychological satisfaction in our uh, denomination when there is really maybe a tense issue that's being studied by a committee. They will try to get representatives from different interests within the denomination. It's for this reason. Third, their spokesman James also selected representatives to go along with Paul and Barnabas to make sure that it was Jerusalem folk who helped communicate the decision. And so that avoids the problem of accidental miscommunication. Fourth, the letter gave a gracious way for the opponents to admit that they were wrong. Because um, both Peter and James make it clear this was brand new revelation that was given in Acts chapter 10. And then James also says it's consistent with the Scripture, but uh, this gave a way out for these Pharisees uh, who were converted to say, you know, we're wrong. But we didn't know that this was a new revelation. Uh, and so it, it, it helped them to... Uh, graciously back out of their position. Fifth, the letter showed sensitivity to the concerns of both the Pharisaic party and Paul's contingent. And I think a good sign, whether you're in a presbytery or anywhere else, a good sign that you've achieved psychological satisfaction is where people can shake hands afterwards and fellowship over coffee, even though they've lost the debate. You know, and we try to model that in presbytery. You can argue vigorously for a position. And once it's, uh, your position has lost, you support them. You know, you move forward. And you really feel like you have not just been done in, that you were able to at least get your ideas across. And then this brings up the third element of truly being heard in a conflict, and that is that the group does not sweep issues under the carpet. None of the issues I raised in Roman numeral two were swept under the carpet. Everyone was faced head on and actually in exactly the same way that Galatians says happened uh, three years before in 46 A.D. So we're not talking about caving in. Paul did not cave in. The book of Galatians, I think, is so clear on that. Uh, Peter goes to bat for Paul's concerns. James speaks for both Jewish and Gentile concerns. Both Peter and the letter rebuke the Judaizers for what they were doing. It was uh, just totally out of line. It rebukes them. Every issue was dealt with. In families, let's apply this. In families, it is many times easier to just ignore problems rather than to face conflict. Just cave in. Other times, uh, issues involving children, um, uh, they're, they're ignored because they hope they go away. Other times they're confronted, but as soon as there's just a little bit of forward movement in the right direction, you just drop it because you don't want the conflict and you don't have full resolution. You need to take it through. Uh, let me make a recommendation for those of you who have a difficult time achieving these three things. Procedural, psychological, 
substantive satisfaction in your family debates. I recommend that you use Jay Adams' family conference table ideas. It's on the back table, 25 copies of the packet back there. And this has helped so many families enter into real meaningful discussion where they've just been at a stalemate before. Uh, it helps everybody to feel like they're heard. It objectifies things, gets it down onto paper. And some people have told me, man, this feels really strange and artificial, Phil. Well, it's sort of like Robert's Rules of Order. It feels very artificial when you do that. And let me just use that as an illustration because in our session, uh, we rarely use Robert's Rules of Order. Uh, sometimes you have to. And in the new presbytery that we're forming, it's small enough where uh, we're planning not to use Robert's Rules of Order unless an issue or a difficult sticky point comes up and then we'll quickly switch into Robert's Rules of Order way of doing things. Otherwise, we just dialogue. You don't need to use these artificial means if you're already communicating so greatly that there are no misunderstandings. The whole point of this is uh, to try to objectify things, take some of the emotion out of it. And I highly recommend if you are one of those people who constantly are having difficulty communicating your ideas, there's frustration, there's conflict, and you know you're not resolving the conflict, pick up one of those packs. I think it will really help you. It's just like Robert's Rules. It feels a little artificial at first, but I've seen so many families who have had incredible results by using those rules. And follow it exactly the way it says. Now, you can make a substitute. He has you standing up. If the people are breaking the rules, you can raise your hand or have some other signal. But I think they are important. Now, let me just pick two more ingredients that I think the Chinese church is so good at and the Western church needs to learn. Point C states that there is the need for patience. It was patience that sent them to Jerusalem rather than having a church split. And this was serious enough. It could have easily caused a church split. Uh, patience is also seen in verse 7. When there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, he had been biding his time. Now, that can be tough, especially if you know the answer. <laughs> you know, Peter knew the answer. Uh, he was in agreement with Paul. He knew the answer. And yet he wanted to make sure other people are processing through all of the things he's already been able to process through. He doesn't do a shortcut and say, this is the way it is. And I have fallen into this trap uh, before in our marriage. I was Mr. Answer Man, sometimes giving answers to my wife before she's even gotten them out of her mouth. Now, that's not always appreciated and it's definitely not always needed. What is needed is for me to have heart to heart communication, letting her express it even if she expresses it slower than I can express it. It doesn't matter. Let her express it and give understanding to the fears, the emotions and other things. You see, if we are quick to hear, we're going to miss the questions that really need to be asked and that need to be answered. And sometimes it's hard for the other people to tell you what their questions are. They just know it doesn't feel right. And so the skill of a leader is to ask questions and to try to work with them and to dialogue until they finally say, yeah, that's why I'm feeling uncomfortable about that. That's the issue. And then you can address that and work with them on that. But this has been an area that has taken me a long time to, to figure out. But a full resolution to a conflict is to be had. It must be approached with patience and much listening. James says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Slow to wrath. That's exactly what Peter was doing. You know, under Roman numeral two, I listed 
a long list of complicated, intertwined fears, concerns, issues, doctrinal problems. And I think many of the leaders probably missed those because they were so attuned to doctrinal compromise, they weren't thinking of the fears and the concerns. But as the process emerged, they began realizing there are legitimate concerns on both sides. We've got to think about those. And so let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. So it was only after much dispute, Peter felt he had enough information to begin addressing the problem. Verse 12 shows the same patience on the part of Barnabas and Paul. Verse 13 shows the same patience on the part of James. After they had become silent, James answered. And I think a lot of family and church conflicts could be settled if leaders would simply spend more time listening, asking questions to clarify, guiding the discussion so that everyone has a chance to contribute before they come down with their decree. In fact, even with your children, you'd be surprised at the wisdom that comes out of your children. As you come to the family conference table, everybody's got the Bible there, and they might think, they don't know how to answer this question, but we say, we've got a problem, and we need to solve this biblically. And you might think you know the answer, and I usually do <laughs> think I know the answer. <laughs> but you wait. You ask questions, you process, and you would be surprised the wisdom that come out of your kids' mouths where they come to the conclusion. And let me tell you something. When they have ownership of it, it feels so much better than when you've decreed it. I think it's just a very important principle what they've done here. Now, this does not mean that the leaders abandon their responsibility to make decisions. Point D says that gifted leadership must be allowed to speak and lead. After processing through all of the issues and the concerns, Peter, Barnabas, Paul, and James, they wrap it all up and they help the assembly to make a decision. So on the one side, they didn't just, you know, quench anybody else's input, close off debate by saying, hey, we're inspired. and We've already given the answer to this question. You guys just listen up. Now, they were inspired. And if they didn't do that, for sure, we should not do that. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at there? If they were willing to let the process go through, we definitely need to because we're not inspired. So I find that very fascinating. How many times do we fathers make a decision without ever discussing it with our families, even if we know it might give hurt feelings? Okay? These apostles wisely involved the whole body and then they presented it to the whole body to sign on to. But without their leadership, it probably would not have happened. And every denomination, no matter how grassroots it is, has wise men who can help an assembly come to conclusions. They many times write the decisions. And those decisions, as they're presented, occasionally they're overthrown, but occasionally sometimes changed or fine-tuned. But usually it's their decisions, what they have written up, that are adopted. This is what happens. In fact, you wouldn't get anywhere if it wasn't for the leaders uh, some of these key wise leaders in a general assembly of 1,200, which is how many we had this past sun, uh, summer in, in the general assembly. There are men in our denomination like David uh, Coffin who are so good at writing documents that are moving things forward in a biblical direction, but do it in a way that, that, that brings consensus. I just stand amazed. So I'm always wishing, I hope David Coffin gets up and speaks to this issue. I don't agree with David on a lot of things. In fact, on creationism, he's all wet. But I value him. This is a man who has done some incredible things for our denomination. That's the way it was with Peter, James, Paul, and Barnabas. Uh, they, they speak to the issue very, very cogently. They write this letter. 
it is adopted by the assembly, and the whole assembly is pleased. Now, next week, I may share an example of a court case in our denomination that nearly split the PCA in the 90s. Uh, I, it, it took, well, let me put it this way. It looked like both sides were so deeply entrenched that they're in their respective positions that reconciliation was impossible. Up to a third of the denomination was planning to leave, including yours truly. It just seemed like there's no way uh, of reconciling getting this figured out. But by being very careful to follow the next point, which we're going to look at next week, so stay tuned, <laughs> by looking at that point, one th- all 1,000 delegates, 1,000 plus delegates gave a unanimous decision. And we were floored. We were just staggered by the result of that. Now, we all agreed it was a compromise, but there was no biblical compromise that was made. It was a compromise of preferences. Uh, We all agreed it was a compromise, but we were all well pleased with the results and God received the glory. And that's my prayer for your families and businesses and any other associations uh, that you uh, work with. Dads will sometimes have to make executive decisions that are not popular. But what a blessing it would be when there is such great communication going on in our in our congregation that misunderstandings are cleared up. You know, maybe compromises are made that make the whole family pleased. In fact, that verse 22 is characteristic of us. The whole family gets behind us and says, we're well pleased with where we're going, Dad. Let's pray that that would be the case. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it is a practical guide for our steps. And I pray that we would live it out. We praise You, Father, and it is our desire to glorify You in this coming week. In Jesus' name, Amen.